0: So I was, oh, scary. I know I say this all the time, but I really struggled. I was like, what? So I'm preaching on the context and community that Jesus in Jesus' day. And I was like, how? I was struggling to see how this would reveal more of Jesus. So I was like, come, Jesus, you need to show me. <laughs> I'm a five on the Enneagram, so I really need, I need to assimilate knowledge to understand you. And it's just not happening. Guess what? He comes through, hey? <laughs> I think it was Friday night. <laughs> I went to sleep and then I woke up and I was like, oh, I get it. <laughs> I was like, could you not do it so last minute? Anyway, so today we're going to look at more of the historical context of when Jesus was alive. And actually what's interesting with um, the Jewish religion is that, I don't know about you, but you kind of think of the Jewish religion and you just kind of think that they're all Jewish, that there's no fractions within the Jewish community. <laughs> Glenn's like, no, you're wrong. And I'm like, no, I no. <laughs> um, so we're going to have a look at that and how that impacted Jesus and what he was doing. And then some of the circumstances around the settings of why Jesus did what he did. So the, the meaning of the word, oh, I hate this thing. Oh, you see, Rachel... No, she's just gonna follow me, hey, okay, cool. I hate the clicky thing, okay, so meaning of context just to help us understand what we're doing today, so it's a circumstance that form the setting for an event, a statement, and an idea, and in terms of which something can be fully more fully understood, right? So what we're looking at is a context of when Jesus was alive to help us understand the statements that he makes the ideas that he brought and then also to fully understand him more so over this series who's under who kind of feels like you you know Jesus just a little bit more who feels like you're a little bit more in awe of who he is like you you go oh i'm getting i'm getting this i get more of what he's done of how he lived of who he is and that's what the whole goal of this um is. Okay, so, so to understand the broad context of the day was that the Jewish or well, the Israelis were living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. So in, in Daniel, the book of Daniel, two sections of the book of Daniel describes kind of through two different imageries. And, go on, and I encourage you to go look at it. So one is in Daniel 2 and the other one's in Daniel 7 where it talks about four empires, okay, the last one being the worst. And guess what? The Roman Empire is the last one. <clears throat> and it was, it was described as something different, something different from the rest of the empires that were there. So the Jewish mindset was very oppressed. They were living under the rule of the Romans, King Herod was a Roman, and he did um, rebuild the temple for them in that time. And apparently it was one of the seventh wonders of the world. Okay, so he had kind of restored it to what they kind of were hoping, the Solomon's temple. And it was spectacular. But they were still oppressed. So now we, now that's kind of the Roman Empire and how it impacts the Jewish kind of lifestyle. But, and that's a very brief overview. You can go and have a look at all the text and all that. I mean, there's so much detail. But I also want to look at the Jewish context. So you had four different fractions, major fractions within the Jewish context. And that was your... your we've, we hear these words, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Okay, the... The, uh, these guys are not mentioned, the Enneces, I don't know how you pronounce it, and the Zealots. It's interesting that um, Bruce mentioned the Zealots, this Smalling, Simon the Zealot. So I'm going to go into, so Pharisees, we've all heard of these guys, right? I mean, they were, this was the largest group, and they had the most power and the most influence, and that was merely because their social class was from the common people. They were the keepers of the law. They were your watchdogs. So they didn't really kind of go, well, you know, I'm living the righteous life. Their out view was like, are you keeping the law? So they would kind of love to blow the whistle on people who weren't doing it right and properly. The law, when we talk about the law or the Torah, they believed in the, the oral law or the oral, oral Torah. So basically, it was the commandments, the written Torah. And then it's now their interpretation of how you should live out your life. Okay, so Jesus loved to call them hypocrites. He loved to mess with their world. Um, They had very strict laws. I think it was over 600. I mean, I wouldn't be able to remember three of them in, in a given day, but they have over 600. And it's about how to live your life in purity and holiness every single day. Of course, making sure that everybody else lives like that and not necessarily you. Um, They did believe in the afterlife. They did believe in the supernatural. And they did believe in angels, demons, and such. They disappeared after 17 AD. But the theology of the Pharisees lived on. Okay, And they were in direct opposition to Jesus. Why? Because he really offended their hearts. He loved to offend them. The Sadducees, now these were kind of on the opposite end of the scale to the Pharisees. Still, So the, the Pharisees would say were your religion, religious hearts. The Sadducees were your political hearts. These guys, okay, they didn't believe in anything supernatural. There was no such thing as the afterlife. It's interesting. There was no such thing as angels and demons. These guys were politically influenced by the greek mindset so basically they held the high priesthood they were kind of your high priests in the temple system and they only really wanted to operate there why because they wanted a more lavish lifestyle so they believed in fully and that there was only the written law and again it was their interpretation of that Um, they were very elitist in their rule in their thinking They were higher than thou, because I think because in many ways they had a lot more money. They were like, okay, well, you know, we are better than everybody else. They were smaller in group, and they they disappeared around the temple's destruction, which is around, and if you note all the dates of when these groups or fractions disappeared, it's all around the same timing, but for different reasons. Um, and they actively opposed Jesus in the church. Why? Because he threatened their power base. Remember, the temple was their power base of influence. He threatened that. The Essenes, okay, so this was a protest movement. movement huh? How do you pronounce it? Essenes. Okay, whatever, those, those guys. They emerged as a protest movement against your Pharisees and, and your Sadducees. There was a joke that said that the way to pronounce the Sadducees was because they were quite sad because they didn't believe in the afterlife, so they were sad, you see. (laughs) They believed in the temple and the city living, and the people, the Jewish people, had become corrupt. So their way of kind of dealing with their way of protesting was let's move out of the city, let's move out of the temple. They stopped living and having temple sacrifices and they lived in, decided to go live in the desert. They isolated themselves from the world and that was their own way of becoming and living pure. They were very hung up on their daily purity rituals such as bathing and stuff like that. They made, they had strict dietary laws, it was mostly men, <laughs> I wonder why, and um, they took, because they took celibate vows, okay. And um, you know the Dead Sea Scrolls where they said the Qumran came out of? This is where they believe the group of the Qumran came out of the, these guys. <clears throat> they were destroyed around the same time, 68, 69, 70, around that time as well. Um, and they, they, although they believed mostly of what the Pharisees believed, they denied resurrection of the body. Okay. Our zealots. They believed that change would only come by force and violent one at that. These guys were less religious or about a relationship with God than they were about politically motivated in rebellion. And they were really for the armed resistance against Rome. If you if anybody knows about the last stand in Masada, these guys were it. And there's conflicting reports whether they committed suicide or not, but they kind of died out during again, just after the seventy, about seventy-three. Okay, so but all all of the things that they have in common was that they believed, so this is the mindset of the day, that they believed and expected that God would soon intervene in their lives, in their course of history. And he would, in a very decisive way, on their behalf, come and deliver them from their oppression, from their enemy, which was the Roman Empire at the time. Don't worry, I'm not going to stay in a lecture mode. (laughs) I can't do that. But it's important for us to understand the context of what the mindset was of the day. Now, the temple was incredibly important for all of them, except for the, the the. The guys who ran into the desert. It was their center of life. This is where political, religion, and cultural fused as one. And that's what made them Jewish. Okay. So their expectations might not have kind of been what Jesus' expectation was. Or Jesus' mission was. And this is part of the problem. So in the day, they expected this Messiah... And Messiah means king, really. So this king would arrive, and he would save them. He would rescue them. He would turn the Gentile world to the Jewish religion, and they would be free. That was kind of the expectation of the Messiah. He would, in fact, bring an army, and he would be more sort of stronger than your Roman emperor and the Caesars of the Roman Empire. And he would be their rescuer, their deliverer. A great warrior king was kind of the understanding of that. Now, what's interesting about the day is because the expectation was at its highest, so what they had done is they would taken the book of Daniel. In, in Daniel, which is one of the only books of the Bible that actually gives time and date calculations, there were guys who were calculating the exact time of when this Messiah would come. And they were kind of figuring out, rightly so, that it was kind of around now. And if you, I, mean, I, I left all the date, you know, the time data out because my brain just was like, how do you get to that number? But I'm sure Gary and Kieran, and if you go read it, you probably figure it out too. But I was like, no, it's going to just confuse me. But they were expectant, they were hopeful. So much so that the very devout families were calling their children after the pa- patriarchs, Jesus' brothers. Apparently, there were four of them. All had names of the great patriarchs. Jesus. Now, we have the English word of Jesus. The the Jewish word was Yeshua, which was Joshua. Joshua means Yahweh will save or Yahweh will deliver. Okay? There were lots of Joshua's or Yeshua's running around. It was a very common name. Why? Because people were hoping... God would, you know, like, okay, well, maybe he's given me my, my little, come Yeshua, you're going to be the false, you're going to be the Messiah. And actually, there were lots of false messiahs at the time who were rising up going, I am the one, and then try and liberate the people, and it kind of failed. So it didn't, it wasn't helpful. So we think of Jesus as this very sacred name, but it was like, there were lots of Johns running around and lots of Ellas running around. You know, it was that kind of thing. It was a very common name. Now, the next context that I want to paint a picture of is from Jesus himself. So now Jesus, he uses the title Son of Man over 81 times. I think it's around 81 times in the four Gospels. That's quite a lot. In fact, it's one of his favorite references to himself, which is quite interesting. So Son of Man basically means you're the son of a human being. Now, if you think about it, why would Jesus say, hey, guys, me as the son of the human being, when he is to them, their experience of him was a man in the flesh. It was kind of like, a, well, why are you making that stupid point? So I was asking him, I was like, well, why did he choose that particular reference? And it was a title that he gave to himself. So he was trying to undo the expectation that people had of him. So if you go and read the Gospels, and every time he mentions son of man, look at the, the context of which he was saying it in. Often it would be in the context of a suffering servant that he was coming to. If you look in Mark 1, I think it is, it's like he came... Not to be served, but he came to serve. He came to suffer. He came to lay down his life. He was the ransom for many. He was undoing the the mindset, or trying to undo the mindset of what people's expectations of what a Messiah should do in that day. The other, even more subtle context, so the... Obviously in the Gospels it's mentioned eighty-one times by Jesus himself and a few other people. In the the rest of the New Testament, in the Old Testament, there's three times. So the book of Ezekiel is filled with Son of Man, but it's God calling Ezekiel the Son of Man. It's him saying, Hey, you weaker. <laughs> hey, you're human. You're weak. You're vulnerable. You're human. Psalm 80 is the other reference, and that's, again, in a very general sense. But Daniel 7 is a very different kind of reference, and it's mentioned one. So Daniel 7 is an introduction to an incredibly mysterious figure. So it reads, There appears one who is like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. It's like, what? There's a human figure, but he's coming on the clouds of man. This is a heavenly realm we're speaking of, a spiritual realm. So there's a mystery attached to it, as well as there's this divinity attached to it as well. Because it goes on to say that once all the beasts of the kingdoms and those four empires that I was telling you about in the beginning, was that once those were overcome, God seats this man and he gives him all dominion. So it says here, he sees on the clouds of heaven, one came like the Son of Man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God our Father, and it was, was presented to him, or before him. And there he was given him, the Messiah, dominion, glory, and kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion was everlasting. In in other words, it wasn't going to pass away. And his kingdom was one that shall not be destroyed. So that's an interesting thing. So who is this figure? And Jesus starts alluding to that maybe perhaps he is that man. Because the context of Daniel was, again, suffering. People, the Israelites, were in Babylon, and they'd been taken captive. They were living in captivity. So this element of God is going to rescue you, from your suffering is the context of what Daniel is written from. And what's interesting is that just before um, chapter 13, it says the ancients of days takes his seat, and courts, the heavenly courts are now in session. This is a court case. The books are open, judgment is going to be passed. So that's your context. Now, Jesus, by quoting this phrase, starts to identify himself as perhaps maybe he is this man. It's more subtle because of the there's only one reference. But those who are very devout, remember from the age of 13 or 12 and 13, they all knew the Torah, most of it by heart. Jesus quotes the most the Psalms, um, Isaiah and Daniel. He loves quoting, which meant he loved these books, which meant he had he knew them. So now he starts to reinterpret the expectations of what what the Messiah is going to do. Because his mission as Alexander and what the series has explained is that as he starts to understand growing up what his mission was, he starts to realise that his mission is not to come and overthrow an earthly realm. His mission was that through his own blood, instead of blood shed through a war, a holy war, he would through his own blood ransom many for freedom. And it was quite extraordinary what he was claiming through this, using this phrase. The other imagery that's in Daniel 7 is that he's now presented before the king. Why? Because he's now a representative of the human race. He's still the Son of God. But now, as a representative, as a human being, he has to get escorted into heaven before his earthly father. Just remember that when I go back to Hebrews just now. Jesus also adheres to the protocols of the heavenly realm. He comes in on a cloud, but he waits and he is escorted in. He's waiting until the father directs him. He submits to the entire process you get a sense of formality and importance of this moment. It's Like if you read it, the imagery, allow your imagination to think of this because it's an incredible thing. And then one of the things that I got stuck on was this clouds of heaven. It's it's very interesting. Why did they use this as an image? And this is what woke me up in the middle of the night on, on Friday morning. So one of the things was that the whole plan of the cross had to be shrouded in mystery. Okay. Why do you say that? Well, it's a great question. Do you think that the enemy would have allowed Jesus to have gone to the cross if they knew what the effects of the cross would have been for them? Do you think that the demons, the spiritual world, your, your fallen angels would have allowed that if they knew what Jesus was doing on the cross effectively. No. God and Jesus set them up. So that part of the plan was always shrouded in a bit of mystery when you read through the, the, the prophecies of what Jesus would do. The cross was very, we understand it because we can look back, but from their point of view, they couldn't see, kind of, they couldn't see and they it would have been very counterproductive if they knew what Jesus was going to do. So we go to Mark 14. And what's interesting, go and read the book of Mark. Jesus tells many people, don't tell anybody. When they have a revelation of his identity as the Messiah, he says, don't tell anybody about it, including some demons. I love it. I think it's incredible He was like okay you guys and they have to listen to him because i know he was he's like you're not allowed to say a word and they're like ah because they started to have a glimpse of what god was and jesus were doing it was shrouded in a mystery it was a covering so clouds mean like there's a few things that clouds represent so hebrew language is is not as abstract as ours hebrew language is more pictorial so cloud would be a covering it's a covering in the sky So he was shrouded in a sense. He was covered in terms of what he was fully doing and who he was and what he would represent for a time. Okay, I'm taking a lot of license in this. Please don't make a doctrine out of this. So he tricked the enemy. He tricked the Pharisees. He tricked the Sadducees. He used them as a means to get him. They were so offended by him, and he did it deliberately so that they would go, Let's kill the dude and let's crucify him. Why do you say that, Louise? Well, let's go read Mark 14. So Jesus has been arrested out of the garden. They've taken him through. They're asking him so many questions. They've got false witnesses against him. He says nothing. Now he, they bring him before the high priest, Sophiasis, or however you pronounce These guys' names are ridiculous. So now the high priest is highly frustrated with this man. He's not answering any of their accusations. In fact, he seems like it's... "Eh." So then he finally says to him, are you the anointed Messiah, the son of God? And Jesus now finally answers. For the first time, he reveals who he is. He goes, I am. That statement in itself is offensive because that's the name of Yahweh. The Jews believe that that is who God revealed himself to Moses. If you remember, I am. I am who I am. So really, he's gone, oh, let's see how much I can offend you guys. I am. But he doesn't stay there. No, why would we do that? Because maybe we have to get them completely offended. He does a double quotation from Psalms 110 and from Daniel 7. He combines them into a double quotation just to kind of seal the deal. As we would say, he put the nail in his own coffin. And he goes, I am, and more than that, you are about to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Almighty, Psalm 110, and coming in on heavenly clouds. And from that statement, the high priest is like, I've got you. I've got you. Blasphemy. And they take him away, and now it's done. You guys, you're going to be crucified. The whole time, this was Jesus's plan. The thing about his comments, especially from Psalm 110, he's, he offended his heart because he is part of the struggle against Jesus. Was him saying, "I will destroy the temple in three days," and blah blah blah. Remember, the Sadducees' power base was the temple. Jesus was offending him at his. Power base. He was like, well, if we destroy the temple, effectively, you're going to lose your influence over the people. And he did that. N.T. Wright says an amazing thing about this whole thing of Jesus coming in on the clouds. And he says that Daniel 7 is about the suffering representative of God's people. After his suffering. So, the clouds of heaven, the way it's described is that it comes up. Because they're in heaven. Being a son of man would have to naturally come up. And this upward movement is a movement of vindication. And then, on top of that, he is given that, like we read, all dominion, all glory, and the kingdom of God. His kingdom shall not pass away. You can try but it's not going to pass away. And his dominion will last forever. So not only did he offend and mess with the earthly realm and the powers and the bees of the the men of the hour of that day, but he messed with the heavenly realm as well, the spiritual realm. Only after his death, I believe that, If you read Psalm 22, hell went mad at at Jesus. Read it in the Passion Translation and understand not only the physical torment that he was going through, but the the spiritual torment that was coming at him was incredibly immense. We think we have oppression. Jesus had the entire hell coming at him because they thought they had won. So guess what? We have this incredible moment now where the Son of Man comes now on the clouds of heaven. And he's now fully revealed to the heavenly realm. And they just realize that their time is up. It talks about that last beast gets smashed. And then the other beasts if in, in Daniel 7, that they are... They haven't been killed, but they are given a season and a time. Their time's up, or it's coming up. And they are limited in their domain now. And Jesus is seated next to his Father. In Hebrews it says, The kingdom of God has now come and will extend throughout the earth or the world. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This means that God has left nothing outside of the control of his son. Even if present like now, we have yet to see this accomplishment. But we see Jesus, who as a man lived for a short time, lower than the angels, And now has been crowned with glorious honor because of what he has suffered in his death. For now he towers above all creation. For all things exist through him and for him. You can see that. Even the plan of his death. The enemy's plans he used for him and for our good. And God made him the pioneer of our salvation. Perfect through his sufferings. And this is now how he brings many sons and daughters to share in his glory. Another thing that the cloud represents in Hebrew language is is a crowd of people. So when he came into heaven, he was bringing through his remnant, the seeds of the sons of future sons and daughters into heaven. That is incredible. It wasn't just for him. It was for us. So now we have an invitation. In Mark 1, it's amazing that you brought up the story about um, Jesus spotting Simon the zealot and his brother Andrew, and they were fishing, right? So Jesus spots them, and he calls them, and he says, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. We all know that, right? First of all, that come and follow me is an invitation, he asked them, Do you want to come and follow me? He has this upstart. He's a 30-year-old rabbi, and he's just calling to random fishermen, come follow me. And these guys immediately leave their nets, drop their livelihood, and then follow him. What on earth? You see, Jesus extends that same invitation to us. Because in the coming and following him, there's another, there's a promise to that. Because he says, I promise I will make you. I'm going to form you and make you to become more like me. That is always done in his community and his, it's not isolation, like how the, the monks decided to live. And then it's not left there where you become like a monk, you follow Jesus, and you live out in the desert, and then you live a pure life. He's going, no, 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 there's more to this. I'm going to now make you fishers of men, and I'm going to call you to call others to extend the invitation. So we can impact, why? To extend his dominion, expand his kingdom. In the time of Jesus, after he was resurrected, They didn't know them as the church or Christians. That came out much later. Actually, what they called them was the way. These guys were called the followers of the way. And in um, those days, you don't follow a belief system. You follow a person. And you follow that person in order to become like them. So rabbis... They used to have a saying, and I don't know if I'm getting it right, but they'd say, may the dust of your rabbi flick onto you as you walk behind him. And it sounds quite offensive to us, but actually it was like, may you be so close to him that the dust from his shoes affects you and you become more like him. It wasn't actually a compliment. They have weird compliments. So we are called to follow him, not a set of rules, but to follow a person. And it's both the matter of belief, and I think we in the Western church focus solely on the matter of belief, but it's both. It's both a matter of belief, what do you believe, who do you believe he is, but it's also the matter of practice. In our belief, we choose to trust him so that we practice what he does and live it out. Because Jesus, we all heard the saying, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So we follow his way to bring us into truth, which leads us to the Father, who is our life. Heavenly realm, seated next to Father, in heaven, we are seated with them. That is our destination. And the book of Hebrews It says that Jesus' broken body is the new and living way for us to enter into the most high place. And then now we are, as brothers and sisters in God's family, because of the blood of Jesus, he welcomes us right into the most holy sanctuary in the heavenly realm. Boldly and with no hesitation. Whereas Jesus had to be escorted in, we get to walk in boldly because our escort is is the blood of Jesus. For he has dedicated a new life-giving way for us to approach God. We don't have to follow a set of rules like the Pharisees and watch everybody else. We don't have to be watchdogs. We don't have to get a place of influence and create a place for, for power over people like the Sadducees. And we don't have to run away from the world and isolate ourselves like the desert monks, <laughs> I'm not going to say that word. <laughs> in order to live pure lives, we can approach, approach God because Jesus has torn that veil. His body was torn open to give us free and fresh access to the Father. So, in in this, go to the last slide, right? So I have questions. Don't you like these questions? In John 8, 31 to 32, Jesus says, If you hold on to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So my question is, can you really call yourself a disciple of God? If, the, if Jesus said, and he also says in another way, he says, If you love me, you'll obey me. He's like, how... Much are you holding onto the teachings of Jesus? Do you view him as just maybe a prophet or a teacher, like a rabbi, somebody who can give you like good morals to live your life, or do you hold fast onto that? Because then you can say you're his true disciple. And I want you to be honest with yourselves today. What is your following distance with Jesus? And I really love this. So we, we have the three disciples. You know, John was amazing. He's like, I'm the one that Jesus loves the most. But it was actually his heart was that he really gave his whole... He wanted to be so close to Jesus that he lays head on Jesus' shoulders. That was his relationship to Jesus. Are you one of the three or maybe you're one of the 12 where Jesus gave you the invitation of coming. You immediately dropped everything and you just went to be with him. You didn't fully understand it, but you were there. Maybe you were part of, you were part of his, what they call his mobile mixed gender community. There's a big one. So all the, the women, all the, the people who followed Jesus, who left their lives behind and traveled around with him, are you the part of the 72 that are willing to go out and they came back overawed by what God had done through them? Or are you just a part of the crowd? You hear that he's this amazing guy who's, you know, the next, but then the next great thing comes on and you're going to go with the crowds to whatever else is best. What is your current following distance with Jesus? Paulie, can you come up? I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to ask Jesus to help you answer that question. Let's be honest with ourselves. And it's really okay. He was never mad at the crowd. He was never mad at the 72. He was never mad at that community that followed him around because they weren't part of the 12 or the 3. He was not angry with people, but he did long to have more with every, everyone. So what's your following distance? Maybe you are merely a part of the crowd. You hear some of the things that he's done, and you've witnessed some stuff, but you don't really know him. Maybe you're part of the 72, but you're tired of that and you want to get him to know him a little bit more. And maybe you're part of that community that followed him around, got to know him. But you long to be a part of the 12. You see, when he says, come and follow me, he's calling out you. He's inviting you. How close will you go to his heart? How close do you want to get there? How much do you want not only your beliefs, but your practice, your lifestyle, to become more like Jesus? How desperate are you? You can answer that with him. You can't answer that with people. Let's enter into worship. Let's think of what that heavenly realm would look like with the Father seated next to His Son and they inviting us to come sit next to them because that's what Jesus' blood has done for us.
1: Let's stand and let's worship. Just consider what has been spoken of. I think it's a profound thing that Louisa shared with us this morning.
2: I just
0: uh, just felt um, there would be a miss to have a message like that and then not have an invitation if you do not know Jesus to not have an opportunity to be able to come up and ask to meet Jesus. Um, It's the best thing that you can ever do. And if you don't know Jesus, if you've never made Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've never confessed with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and that He died on the cross for you, then I think it's an awesome opportunity for you to come and have someone pray and lead you to that so that you can be with Father God for now, tomorrow, and eternity.
1: So is anybody here? Anybody here who does not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior? Just lift up your hand. I'd love to pray with you. Well, then we can celebrate because all, we all know him. Let me ask you another question off the back of what uh, Kerry has shared. Is how many of you have confessed Jesus as our Lord? That you believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, but you kind of haven't really seen that materialize in your life. There's no real desire to read the Bible. There's no real desire to be in relationship with him. There's, you kind of go from week to week, and maybe you come to church nine again, but there's, there's not really a connection with what he termed, as Louis showed us, of community. I'd love to pray for you too. Is there anybody here who has felt that way? All right, good. Well, let's just sing this one more time. And finish up the morning. And maybe just to ask one last question. Is maybe you're in circumstances right now and and you... I don't know about you, but I'm sitting there and I'm hearing Louise articulate God's mystery and plan. And Alexander in two weeks time is going to share more on that. But maybe you're in circumstances and maybe you're facing some stuff. Whether it be physical, whether it be emotional, spiritual... Isn't it amazing that we keep asking God for give us an indication of what's going on, when it's going to break, all of that. But it's almost like God gives us a mystery so that we'll draw closer to Him like the 3 and the 12 so that we start to see what He's on about and what He's doing in amongst the mystery of our lives. So as we finish off this morning, let's draw close that God would start to Jesus, Holy Spirit, Father, would start to give us an inkling of what He is doing In the context that we find ourselves, whether it be a suffering one, whether it may be a joyous one, but but whatever it might be, we just don't understand. Let's engage God as we worship that he would bring understanding to the mystery of where we are in our lives.
2: I'm not going to (laughs) sing. Just so you know. I just felt like as Dale was singing Daddy instead of Abba, that a lot of us just went, okay, no, that's one step too far. Like I myself, I could not sing Daddy. I was like, I'm good with Abba because that's almost like a foreign language. But Daddy, that's too close. And I felt God say to me in that moment, he said, you need to love your own father first before you can truly love me. And I was like, Oh man. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I can do that. And I just felt you pray over us that God, would you allow us to love our own fathers? No matter what they've done, no matter what they haven't done, but we think they did, no matter what was misunderstood, miscommunicated, where we felt let down, where we felt abandoned, where we were actually physically mistreated, whatever the case is, God, will you release us? from that hate, that mistrust, that disappointment, Lord, because that is not who you are. God, let us not portray our earthly father...